God, help us today to be inspired by the power of Jesus. And God, help us to be motivated by his example and his baptism and how he dealt with temptation. And help it to encourage us today and inspire us to be people of faith in you. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, uh, Happy New Year everybody. Glad you all are here. I see new faces here today and so I want to say welcome to Actus Church. Glad you guys are here. If you uh, want a gift from our church, you can go out to the connection area right after church and uh, pick up a mug from our church. We would love to just say, uh, get to know you better and uh, welcome you here. So we just want to say we are glad you guys are here. Uh, I am uh, happy for a new year. It is time to move on, right? Time to flush 2016, I think, and uh, move on. That reminds me of a story that I read of a man in Los Angeles, California, who was arrested for negligent discharge of a weapon after he shot his toilet bowl five times with a 38 caliber handgun. He uh, claims he just got upset because his daughter had uh, flushed her hairbrush earlier in the day and clogged the toilet and the brush wouldn't flush, and so he got clogged up, and he got so frustrated by it, he shot the offending toilet. And uh, I have no word on the toilet's condition, but the man's patience was gone, and he, I, I, it's clear to say, uh, I mean, he was really ready to just start the whole deal over. And that actually reminds me of a time uh, several years ago when Benjamin, our oldest, was only two years old, and uh, we had a house, and uh, it was a newer uh, newer house, and it was a brand new toilet. We haven't been in the house very long, and uh, suddenly it stopped up. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know what, why it happened. And here's my two-year-old son, and he's in there, and I'm looking around for his toothbrush, and I can't find it. I said, Benjamin. Ben's always been ahead of his time in terms of smarts, but anyway. So I was like, I said, what, what happened to your toothbrush? Where did it go? And he goes, it went to toilet land. I mean, like, as if there's a magical toilet land kingdom where all the things go, where kids flush and toothbrushes are frolic, frolicking around. But anyway, so I, I ended up taking the, to, the toilet off. It had Christmas packaging in there, bows. He had flushed a lot of things to toilet land, right? And so that, that I couldn't get it all out, so that toilet ended up in Rumpke land. But, you know, anybody just ready to flush 2016? By the way, that's an awkward, it's called an awkward orator transition right there, right? You just try to make something and try to turn it. But anyway, so we just, we're flushing 2016. We're ready for a new season. I, I, like, I like Christmas. Uh, it's my favorite season, but I also like the new year because with that comes new hope and new inspiration, new ideas, nothing magical about it, and yet there is something great about new beginnings. And so today, we are actually starting a new journey in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And so over the next 100 days, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be examining what happened in the life of Jesus. And uh, over the next several months, and I want to encourage you to just read the Gospel of Luke. Now, we're not going to every passage. We're not going to have time to go into every verse. But we're going to hit the main themes of, of the life of Jesus. And here's what I want to say about that, is that the Gospel of Luke is one of the greatest gospel stories because it really talks to a Gentile audience about who Jesus is. Did you know of the 1,151 verses in Luke, 568, almost half of the verses of the gospel of Luke are actually the words of Jesus. I mean, so if you want to know the heart of who Jesus is, you want to know what he had to say, read the gospel of Luke because you're not only going to hear about Jesus, you're going to get to know his words. And so what is our goal for this series? Our goal is that every one of you would fall more in love with Jesus over the next 100 days. 
I mean, not that you wouldn't just get to know Jesus on a mental level, but that you would really just fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. And out of that would would become a greater experience with Jesus. I mean, in fact, I think our worship experiences in this place should be an outgrowth of whatever worship experiences you have in your own life already. And the more that you love Jesus, the more that worship is just this outpouring of of affection and, and appreciation of who Jesus is. And so that is our goal over the next 100 days. So start reading the Gospel of Luke. Now, I want to tell you also that I'm going to tackle, uh, it's going to be a content-rich message today, okay? We're going to handle two major topics, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. So I want to give you a heads up on that right away. So there will be moments where we're hitting a, a fair amount of text, and you just need to be prepared for that. So over the month of December, we talked about unexpected hope and the 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 coming of the Messiah into the world and how now Jesus is a baby. The gospel writers, after telling about his birth, they sort of fast forward. These are, by the way, our topics over the next few months. But they sort of fast forward from Jesus' birth. The only time we see him again is when he's age 12, and then we don't see him again until he's age 30. And so here Jesus is, and he's about to start his ministry. Now the truth is, in those three years, he did more in those three years. I mean, really, he, he didn't even have, in presidential terms, he didn't even have one full term in office, right? And yet this guy radically changed the world. Um, I read, I saw a bumper sticker. You know, this was a kind of a contentious presidential race. Anybody notice that? But anyway, um, so I saw a bumper sticker the other day, Jesus for president. You know, I'm like, I thought, yeah, that's kind of silly, really, when you think about it. I mean, I didn't even know he was running. I but, but when you think about it, like, Jesus for president? I mean, the king of kings, the sovereign lord of creation, right? Oh, instead of like running the universe and everything else, I think it'd be better instead of being king of kings and lord of lords of like everything, you could just be president of the United States, you know? I think that's sort of a demotion, so it's not going to happen, gang, and uh, we just kind of keep Jesus as the ultimate king of everything. How about that? That might be, that might be a good thing to do. All right, Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. Now, this is the beginning, the initiation of Christ kind of ministry, his mission, all right? For 30 years, he's been in prep mode, and now he's ready to begin that ministry. He is really like we are in 2017. He's starting that new chapter of his life, all right? Now, Luke was written by Luke, uh, and he wrote two books in the Bible, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. More words are written by Luke than any other gospel, any other New Testament writer. You might think it's Paul, but it's not. He wrote more books, but Luke wrote more words. And he really writes them as like a history. And so verse 3, which I didn't put up here, actually begins as kind of a history lesson. And Be prepared for some word butchering to happen, all right? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now that sounds like a history lesson, doesn't it? Like it's written by a history professor almost who's going to tell you. And why I like that is because Luke does not write his gospel. When you read the word of God, it does not read like a lie. I mean, the word of God gives you the kind of history and the backing to say this is what happened historically around the life of Jesus. And so we see all of these uh, real figures in history. 
Verse 3 says, he went, who? John, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, he is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. This guy's not very superstitious, is he? He's like, like well, you brood of vipers. Where well, you're looking for the coming of wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so here's the cousin of Jesus. The son of Zechariah and Elizabeth that we talked about weeks ago. And there was an Old Testament prophecy about him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 and 5, where Isaiah specifically says there will be one who comes to do what? To prepare the way. And so John the Baptist is what we call the precursor of Jesus. He's the one kind of laying out the red carpet. He is laying out a new way for the Jews. And he's saying, this is a new day, gang. He's getting them ready for the new beginning. All these years, the Jews have followed God by what? By, by keeping laws, by making sacrifices in the temple, by worshiping God in the temple or in the synagogues. And now he's about to turn a page in the history. And we're about to see where Jesus is coming on the scene, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And what is he showing them? What is he preparing them for? Verse 6 says he's preparing them for God's salvation. Jesus Christ is here. He's arrived on the scene, the King, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Now, the Bible also has a parallel passage to Luke 3, and that's Matthew 3. And that's going to help us learn even more. Matthew 3 says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So listen, as John was preparing the way for Jesus and establishing this new day where the Jews now will be receiving salvation from God, they wouldn't be receiving all of the Old Testament regulations and laws, they would be receiving salvation from God. And as they do that, John the Baptist kind of demonstrates a new pattern. Look what, it, look what he did in verse 6 of Matthew. Says he, can, he said, confess your sins. Acknowledge that they aren't righteous before God. In verse 3 of Matthew, repent, turn from your sin. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so I want you to turn to God. Turn away from all those things in your life. Literally, God is here, you need to turn back to him. Verse 6, he was baptizing people. And Luke chapter 3, verse 8, now that you've done that, he's telling them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just make this a one-time decision. Make sure you live your life in a way that God is pleased by. And this pattern, we're going to see over and over and over again in the scripture where people confess and they repent and they're baptized and they're producing fruit of, of, their, of their righteousness before God, fruit of their life before God. And friends, that's significant. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he comes uh, like, like, on the, like on the video where he is walking now and coming to where, Jesus, where John is baptizing people. And John reacts the way we would all react. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I can baptize you. I mean, look at you. You're the Messiah. In verse 13 of chapter 3 of Matthew, says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to, to me? 
I would have done the same thing. Whoa, me? No way. You're the Messiah. You have come to save the world. You've never sinned. I mean, here's John who's asking people, confess your sins, repent, and then be baptized. He's like, well, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't need to confess his sins. So you wonder, well, why was Jesus baptized? He's never sinned before. And he's like, well, repent. Well, Jesus doesn't need to repent. He's never turned away from God, so he doesn't have to turn back to God. So what is he doing here? And sometimes we wonder, why was Jesus baptized? Look what verse 15 of Matthew says, chapter 3. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. That phrase, fulfill all righteousness, is really important. And I used to think, well, he was baptized to do that. But I think what he means, it really, another word for fulfill is to complete, to complete all righteousness, to complete what is right. What was Jesus here for? All of human history had led to this moment. All of human history had led to this one time where God would become flesh, enter our world, would give his life for us on the cross. That instead of us being righteous before God, because there's no way you and I are ever going to get to heaven on our own. We're never going to be made right before God on our own effort. God himself entered our world to give his life so that he might become our righteousness. And Jesus is saying, this needs to happen. Because for 30 years I've been in prep mode. And now at 30, it's time to get this thing going. It's time to be on mission. And so I think he was baptized first as an initiation of his ministry. You know, he was 30 at the time, and uh, he knew why he was here. He was Savior of the world. And you know, by the way, that Levitical law required all priests who would be consecrated when they began their ministry uh, at about 30 years of age to come and be washed. Numbers chapter 4, verse 30 says, From 30 years old and above, even to 50, you shall number them, Everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting, this encompassed washing and then anointing. I also find it interesting that King David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, David was 30 years old when he took on the, the, the kingdom of Israel and he became king of Israel. And now here we are in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, where Jesus himself, the Bible says, being about 30 years old, was now ready to begin his ministry. And so I think his baptism was an initiation into this great ministry that he is embarking on, the mission of saving the world. It was the coronation of a king. And boy, it was quite a moment. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. I mean, this is, this is quite a scene. When John was baptizing people, Jesus shows up. Now, boom, the heavens opened up. He's, and he's like, God speaks. This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible moment. And in this moment, we see the triune God. We see the Trinity right there. And we see all three persons of the Godhead right in that moment. Do I understand all about that? No, I don't. But there are just some things in this life I don't fully understand. But I believe it because in that moment, when the heaven opened up, and God spoke and the Holy Spirit was there like a dove. And Jesus was baptized. I'm seeing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there. I'm like, boom, I get it. That's what happened. And it is quite a ceremony of, of coronation and initiation. It was a beginning. This is when he begins his life of commitment to be Savior of the world. From this point on, there is no turning back. He is public now. 
He's only going forward. What's his mission? To fulfill all righteousness. What's his mission? To complete what is right. What's his mission? To save the world. To do what the prophets foretold. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, who? Jesus, the Messiah, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. They're accounted righteous. Why? Not by their own goodness, but by the goodness of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul fleshes this out more when he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, he's going to take upon himself all the sins of the world. And now because of that, because of his gift, you can now become righteous before God. I mean, the message of Christmas is, we love that message. We sing about that message. All is calm. All is bright. It's so peaceful. The message of Easter, we don't have so many songs. They don't, 93.3 doesn't have two months of Easter music. Why? Because it's, it's a tough message. It's a painful message, but it's also a victorious message. He came on the cross to defeat death, and he raised on the third day from the grave. And these three years, beginning in this moment, would be all purposeful, leading to the cross. So here we have Jesus, who left a sinless, painless heaven to come to this world and die for our sins and experience the incredible pain on our behalf. And in his baptism, he's declaring that he is all in for the mission. And so he was baptized as an initiation into that. But he's also baptized as an identification. As an identification, he now was identifying himself with who? With the priest of the Old Testament. Who at 30 years old were coronated or were led, initiated into their own leadership in the church. And so that, or into the, to the temple. And then he also identified with King David who established his reign at 30 years old. But I think he also identifies with us a little bit. Because here are people being baptized, and, and Jesus in that moment comes, and he's humble before God, and he does what all these others are doing in this new establishment, this new plan. And he's baptized in a way to identify with us as someone who is humble before God. And friends, listen, I believe that when we are baptized, it is both an initiation and an identification as well. The first gospel sermon, Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching about this suffering servant, Jesus, who they killed. And people were so convicted by this. They said, what do we do? In verse 37, chapter 2 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said Peter, to Peter and the other apostles, what do we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They did exactly what John had done with one exception. Now Jesus had died. He had resurrected. And their baptism wasn't just for repentance. It was this initiation into God's team. They were now being known publicly in the name of Jesus. He was their leader. Another example of this is Acts chapter 9 where Saul was about to persecute the church and had been persecuting new followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And he was killing people. And he was bent on a murderous rage, Acts chapter 9 says. And guess what? Jesus showed up to him on the road to Damascus in a quite a miraculous, incredible scene. Saul was so challenged by this, it actually blinded him. There were scales that came upon his eyes, the Bible says. And suddenly it radically changed him. 
And in the following verses, he's now being ministered to and attended to. And guess what it says about Paul? It says that after he'd been ministered to, he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul, who eventually would become Paul, they changed his name, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And listen to what it says. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. That it was almost like this initiation for him where now he went from being a persecutor and hater of the church to now he was a leader in the church. The Apostle Paul responded to his newfound faith in Christ by being baptized and at once beginning to preach. And so what I would say is there was this initiation for us. There is this this beginning moment where, like Peter said to those early believers, hey, we're all in on this. Baptism is also when we identify with Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Romans 3 says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's one of the reasons we dunk people, we baptize people by immersion, because in that moment it demonstrates our death and our burial and our resurrection, that we are identifying with his death, his burial, his resurrection in that moment. I love the way Galatians chapter 3 says it. It says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. You've now put on Christ's garments, the, the righteous garments of Christ. You know, I, I like to work out from time to time, and sometimes when I get home, I stink. Now, I, I don't know that because I... I notice it. I know that because my wife notices it, right? And so she's like, uh, you know, sometimes my wife can be more direct than subtle. Amen. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I love that about her. So anyway, the first thing she might say, I go, it's like, you know what? You stink. Now, I think there's a lot of different ways to say you stink, right? You might be like, hey, you know what? You probably should take a shower, you know, but nope, you stink. So in other words, go. And so, all right, okay, I got it. I got the message loud and clear. There is no issue with communication. So I now can take a shower. I put Now, what would happen if I put those old stinky clothes back on and I come to the table for dinner? What would she be like? You stink, right? You stink. You still stink. And, and I think what happens sometimes is when we are baptized, we are putting on the clothes of Christ. We are putting on off these old garments of sin and putting on new clothes. That's what Galatians chapter 3 says. You are shredding that old stuff and you are replacing it with the righteousness of God. And I think sometimes what happens is that sometimes we like to put that old stinky stuff back on. We like to try to act like we used to or be like we used to. And that leads me right to this next part. We're now moving from the baptism scene to the next scene which is really when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And I find it interesting. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I think a lot of times people think, man, when I'm going to come to Christ, all is going to be well. But here's what happened. Jesus uh, was clearly identified as beginning his mission. And by the way, the devil, the enemy, was out to get him from day one. Did you know that? Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, the world is created. And, and God creates man. Then he creates woman. Now they're living together with God. They are in harmony with God. They are in union with God. They have God's clothes on. Well, they don't really have God's clothes and they're naked, you know. But anyway, so they're like on God's team and they're in the garden of, and they're, they're in union with God. And God says, you can have anything you want, man. Just anything. Just don't eat of that one tree. 
gave them a choice, and of course they immediately go, mm, kind of like that one tree, and they eat the fruit off of that, and the devil deceives them. Listen, the devil seeks to deceive and destroy. And that's what he does. And, and in that moment, he was trying to take the people off course, but he's also trying to, trying to alter the course of human history. And the very first prophecy is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God tells the devil after this sin moment, he says, listen, there's going to be some consequences. And for you, devil, there's going to be some serious ones. He said, listen, there's going to come a day you're going to strike the heel of the seed of a woman. It's the first prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. In other words, death is going to be defeated. This is going to happen. And from that moment on, God set a plan in motion to save people. Because one of the consequences for their sin was not just pain and childbirth or hard work. It was death. It was eternal separation from God. So God himself decided to set a plan in motion where he would enter our world and he would save us from our sins. And that by our own righteousness, we would never, ever, the Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We'll never get to heaven on our own. But through Christ, through what he did for us, we have the opportunity to put on the righteous garments of Christ. And listen, when you identify yourself publicly with Christ, just like Jesus faced temptation, you will face temptation. Let me tell you, friends, here is the reality. You put on those new team colors, the opponent clearly has you identified, clearly knows what team you're on, and he will oppose you. It's football season. I mean, if it, like it really matters anymore. But anyway, it's football season, and one team is, uh, and football, one team moves the ball on offense, one team opposes that other team and tries to stop them from getting the ball across the goal line. Okay? And these grown men will do everything they can to stop the other team, everything within the bounds of the, of the system. They will do everything they can to, to come against their opponent. And uh, as soon as they see those other team colors, even if those guys were friends off the field, they are not friends on the field, right? And they are going to come against each other. And that's even the case if you are wearing the other team's colors in the stands, you ever been to a different football stadium and you're wearing the other team's colors? That can become a colorful moment. You know what I'm saying? And uh, what would happen to a Bengals fan if they go to Heinz Field and they were in a Bengals jersey? Nothing. They'll just feel sorry for us. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, we feel so sorry for you guys. You know, we're not going to do anything to you. But, you know, I mean, it could get rough. What, why? Because when you put on the opposing team's jersey and colors, you are now the enemy. And friends, listen, the devil has been out to stop the mission of God from the very, very beginning. And when Jesus was baptized, and now he is going public, the devil is right there to stop him right in that moment. Because he doesn't want him saving people. He doesn't want him dying. He wants him to sin. If he can get him to sin, Jesus can't die for us. All right? Now, because our time is short, I'm not going to be able to really delve into this. I wish I could because I studied it. I'm like, wow, this is like a three-week series in and of itself. But I'm going to give you a high-level view of the temptations of Jesus. And all of your temptations will fall into these three categories. They're all in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. If you have time later this week, read both of them. Verse 3, he promised him food when he was hungry. He said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. This was a temptation to satisfy physical desires. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. So he's baptized. Now he goes in the wilderness. He's preparing for that ministry. And now the devil comes and says, I want you to fulfill that desire by providing your own needs. Now, that seems weird. 
Jesus could have done it. He's a miracle worker. Food's not a bad thing. Why was this a sin? It was a sin because basically the devil wanted him to meet a legitimate, God-given need through illegitimate ways. He wanted him to meet an, a legitimate need through, God, through not God-honoring ways. He, he was trying to get him to not trust God for his daily bread. That's, he was trying to get him to kind of step ahead of God, to do it in his own way. That would have been a sin before the Lord. And by the way, that's still a temptation today, to meet physical or emotional, legitimate needs through illegitimate ways. Let's talk about food for a second since this is turning stones into bread. Food's good, but too much of a good thing is not good for us. Some get obsessed with food. The Bible is clear about gluttony, that that's a sin. And some overeat and they pay for it. Someone who doesn't eat, maybe they're anorexic or bulimic and they have other things going on, but that's really a a lot of times built into their self-esteem and what they believe about themselves. And instead of seeing themselves as a beautiful, wonderful, lovely creation of God, they see themselves as something less than that. What about sex? Some, some, someone is single and they think, I'm never going to get married, but I still have needs. I still have physical needs. And they seek those needs outside of marriage. And it's thrilling. Why? Because God created it. But in the end, they're left regretting it, and there is pain involved because they did it outside of the bounds of what God created in marriage. Or let's say someone is married, and they say, my spouse isn't meeting my needs, so they go outside the marriage, and the devil deceives them. Again, he's seeking to deceive and destroy. They'll say, no one will ever know. And same thing with pornography. They say, I can satisfy a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. But what happens is that creates dissension within the home, challenges within the family, and regret, personal regret within the person that drives you further away from God. Meeting legitimate needs in illegitimate ways is still a temptation for all of us. Then in verse 5 and 6, the second temptation He took Jesus to a high place and shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, I can give you authority and power if you just bow down and worship me just for a moment, just for a a second, just worship me. I'll give you power. This was a way that maybe he was tempting Jesus to skirt God's plan and instead kind of take control in of himself. Control and power are, are sins before the Lord. It still happens today. Somebody who's not a Christian looks up to heaven, decides that they're going to take control and power for themselves and says, God, I don't believe in you. I never will believe in you. They don't even study it. That's a sin before God because they're trying to control their own destiny in that way. Or maybe it's the person who is a believer in Christ, but they move ahead of God's timing on a plan. They never really prayed about it. And even if they did, they just simply said, God, this is what we want to do. We now want you to honor it. As if God's going to join you on your mission rather than you joining God on his mission. And and when there's consequences for that, now they turn to God as if he's a cosmic genie. God, could you please just fix me and get me out of this mess? Because I'm really in a mess, and now, God, I'm relying on you. It's almost like a manipulation of God. Still a temptation today. Power is a temptation. Control, trying to control temptation. Worry, overly worried about things. All happens within this category. Here's the third one. The devil took Jesus to the top of the temple and said, throw yourself down, call on angels to save you. And that was a temptation for fame and adoration of others. The angels would have come to him. All the city would have known he was the Messiah. But he would have skirted God's plan once again. And this was a temptation for all the fame and the praise of others. And it still happens today. People who are motivated as people pleasers. 
They avoid conflict. They obsess how we look or appear, and they want to make sure they always look their best. They lie because they want people to not really see the true them. It feeds right into our generation of selfies, and, and uh, we always want people to see us better than we are. Or maybe we're an enabler because we don't want conflict or we're a worrier or we're jealous of others and how they appear. A lot of sins fall in the category of, of, of self-image and the praise and adoration of others. I want to give you two principles. Two principles on temptation. Here's the first one. There is always more at stake than we think. Isn't it true when you see somebody involved in a temptation, you see it clearly. You're like, hey, you, don't, you, this, you know where this is going to go? This is going to go bad for you. But when the person is in the temptation, they never see how bad it's actually going to be. Is that true? Have you seen that? Your own consequences in your own life? You downplay the consequences in your life, and when you look at somebody else, you see it clearly. In the, in the second Star Wars movie, or maybe it was the fifth, I don't really know anymore, but I'm talking about the original God-ordained you know, three. All right, so this is when the Empire Strikes Back, what happens? In this moment where there's Darth Vader and there's Luke, and they're, and they're now fighting each other, and he cuts off his hand, and he's like, well, you're going to be like my, you know, just like my dad. I'm all mechanical. And so this is what's happening in this moment. Darth Vader looks at Luke, and he goes, we're watching this on the big screen. He goes, Luke, you're my, I'm your father. And everybody's like, no, no. And he's like, this is a moment of just like, what is happening? This is your father. And he says, Luke, we can take over the empire. We can rule. This is your destiny. There's no other way. And we're all looking at it like, yeah, there is. There's another way, Luke. There's another way. Don't go that way. Well, how do we know there's another way? I've read in the papers, Return of the Jedi is coming around the corner, man. And it's not going to be long. So just hang on, Luke. Hang on. It's easy when we're looking at the big screen of somebody's life to say, I see what's happening here, and there's something about to happen, and the devil convinces you this is the only way, and this is the best way for you. And take it upon yourself. You can have everything you want. Now, when Jesus was tempted, it wasn't just about turning stones into bread. If he had sinned, it would have completely changed human history. He would not have been able to die for the sins of the world because now he was one of us. He was a sinner just like the rest of us. He couldn't have paid the price like, like, every, like he was intended to do, and that was his mission. This was not about bread. It was about his mission. And when you sin and when you're tempted, it is not just about that moment in time. It is about consequences and the devastation, the relationship that you have in your life, both with God and other people. We have to rehearse those consequences in our lives. So that we can see there is another way. The Bible says there is no temptation that is overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to bear it. There is another way. And here's the second principle, and that is that Jesus knew the Bible, and he used it uh, to defeat temptation. All three times the devil came to him, Jesus combated the deception of the temptation with the truth of Scripture. And by the way, all of them came from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Some people have said Deuteronomy chapter 8 is Jesus' favorite chapter because he quotes from it. But in that chapter, he's talking about the story of the Israelites and how they had now escaped Egypt. And now they were in the wilderness because they had disobeyed God. And now many of that generation had died off and they were about to enter the promised land. And Jesus uses that moment to remind himself of what happens when 
people of God sin against God. Because that generation died in the wilderness, and Jesus and his mind immediately reflects while he's in the wilderness, reflects back to another moment where the people of God were in a wilderness, and now they had sinned before God, and there were devastating consequences. And so he reminds himself of this as he tells the brother, as he tells the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, only by the words that come out of the mouth of God. He uses the Bible to remind him. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 9, How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? Maybe 2017 needs to become the year of the Bible for you and me. Ephesians 6 6 says, It is the sword of the Spirit. It is your offensive weapon against the devil who seeks to deceive you and destroy you. It is the Bible that helps you to get there. Now, I wish I had time to just get in all through Deuteronomy 8, by the way, that whole passage. I would encourage you to read that on your own, too. Deuteronomy 8 and 9, what Jesus is referring to in this temptation passage. But I want to close with this thought. In the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 9, all right, the people of God, again, Jesus reflected back on this during his temptation. Deuteronomy 8, he's giving them some advice. He's reminding them about their sin, reminding them of consequences, reminding them to stay faithful to God. Deuteronomy 9, the people of God are now about to enter the promised land. He's saying you're about to cross the Jordan. You're going to enter the promised land now, okay? And he tells them this. He says, you may think that when you enter the promised land, that somehow, verse 4 says of Deuteronomy 9, that it's going to be of your righteousness. That somehow your goodness, your righteousness is going to help you defeat all these enemies. And he reminds them in verse 1 of chapter 9 and verse 3, you are now about to cross the Jordan and go in. But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you. Friends, it is not because of the Israelites' righteousness, but because of God's righteousness. Which brings me back to Luke chapter 3, where Jesus said, I am being baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to do what is right, to to really take upon the sin of the world, so that now God's righteousness can become your righteousness because sometimes in the Christian life, we're tempted to think that somehow we're going to get to the promised land of heaven on our own merit, our own way, our own righteousness. Friends, that is, that is again, a deception, and it's not true. All roads don't lead to heaven. The Bible says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because it's not your righteousness that gets you there. It's the righteousness of Jesus that gets you there. That's how we get to heaven. It's his way. It's his plan. And he gets to be king. And so when you cross the Jordan of your life, you move from this life to the next life, you can walk with confidence and assurance knowing that it is the righteousness of God that gets you into the promised land. And friends, when you face those moments of temptation, be reminded it is the word of God that infuses in us the memory of the past, the stories of God's people, these verses that will help us get through those times of temptation so that we will be the kind of people that God will look at. And that, that person, they, they took on my righteousness, and man, they have just grown in that and grown in that and grown in that. They've developed a good, solid character, and I'm just so honored to have them on the team. As John said, they are now preserving in righteousness. They are persevering in righteousness because of their repentance. So I want to ask you a couple of challenge things. We're going to sing a worship song. We're going to take communion together. Here's a couple of challenges. First of all, if you've never been baptized into Christ, I want to challenge you as both an initiation and an identification. 
to be baptized into Christ. The water's always ready. We're ready. You can do that anytime, okay? Or you can call us, but we want you to say, I need to make that decision in 2017. If you've never done it, you need to both identify with and you need to be initiated into that team. Secondly, for those of you who are facing temptation, which is all of us, be reminded you need to rehearse the consequences and be reminded that you need to make 2017 the, the year of the Bible. You need to get into the Word of God so that it gets in you. How does a person keep their way pure? By living according to their Word. You can't get the Word of God in you if you aren't reading it. So in 2017, you make it a goal to be reading the Scripture. Make sure it's in your heart and your life as you lead this year. We're going to worship now. We're going to celebrate the, coming, the King who came and died and gave His life. God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for uh, imputing your righteousness on us through the death of Christ on the cross. And God, I thank you for your word, which instructs and teaches us. And now, God, I pray as we worship you that we would do it with just all the humility and all the love and all the passion that we could muster, God, because we know that Jesus Christ gave his best for us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.